0: Good morning. It is good to see all of you this morning, and welcome. An exciting uh, passage, an exciting morning. Thank you to our music team for leading us in song and preparing our hearts for the passage that is before us. As Ben mentioned, we are entering into John chapter 17, which is quite an accomplishment in our church any time we reach a new chapter, Uh, but that is exciting for a number of reasons we come to we come to a, a passage in scripture that's really unique and it has kind of captured the heart of the church since it was written and that that is because it gives us this window into this conversation between our savior and his heavenly father uh, a a prayer that gives us this conversation that we're allowed to listen in on and and it instructs us it gives us insight into what the relationship between the father and the son looks like and as we're going to see this morning it is full of of glory and glory is one of those topics that comes up a lot in the church and it's something that uh, it's a word we use all the time it's sometimes hard I think to appreciate Uh, we've I saw even this week an article that came out, I believe it was in the World Magazine, called The Weight of Glory, and it was all about all these Olympic athletes that struggle after they win their medals with what do you do with all the prestige and the honor that comes from that and how the, a lot of their, their lives are are really, in some ways, more difficult because of the glory that they've achieved and trying to figure out how to how to deal with all that. And so I want to begin, before we actually read our passage this morning in John 17, with just a short introduction on what is glory. What is glory? Uh, This will be familiar for many of you, but I think it's good to get a running start at this concept because it's going to be so dominant in our passage. As many of you know, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, it has the, the root meaning of something that's heavy, something that has substance and weight to it. It's a word that speaks of things so wonderful. It's like they have their own virtuous mass. Uh, sometimes we think of gory, just like bright, shiny lights. And I like these lights. These are LED lights here that illuminate the stage, as long as I don't look right at them, in which case all I can see is spots. But they're bright, they're light, uh, but uh, they're very cool, and they're very light. Uh, they're, not, they're not very heavy. And in a world of LED lights, uh, I think sometimes we, we could associate brilliance and brightness with something that's very light, very ephemeral. Think of a star. Think of a star. It's very bright, but it's also incredibly heavy, and that's what enables it to be so brilliant. Some of you can relate to this. Have you ever experienced something so good, so glorious, that it just felt heavy to have seen that thing, to have witnessed that thing, to have experienced that thing? we use words if you uh, listen in our songs, in our writing in our in our culture, words like something that's hauntingly beautiful, devastatingly good, overwhelming, enthralling, captivating, even crushing. There's this vocabulary that we've developed to describe these things that are just so powerfully good that you just feel like you can't even bear up underneath them. and that's that's the essence of this word that's behind the concept of glory. So how do we understand? What that means then when we're talking specifically about God? Well, I think it's helpful to understand glory in a couple different ways. We want to understand what makes God glorious and then to understand how that glory is manifested. How do we see or experience the glory of God? The, the essence of God's glory, what makes him glorious, is the weightiness of the goodness of each of his attributes. That's what makes God a glorious being is that every single one of his attributes is as good and as full and as perfect as it can possibly be to a point that it is weighty. God is loving, but not just loving. He is so loving, right? He is good. He is faithful, but not just good and faithful. He is so good and so faithful, perfectly good, perfectly faithful. Every one of his attributes is that attribute to its fullest, to its best. And this is true of no other being in the universe. No other being in the universe can claim to have the perfections of his attributes. Only our God. It's also the case that no other being in the universe even possesses these attributes in part without having received them from God. And so God only is glorious in and of himself. That's it. There is no other being in the universe glorious in and of himself. He's the fountainhead. He's the true source. He's the rightful owner of all glory. So then how is that glory of God seen? How is it experienced and known by his creatures? Well, I think in two primary ways that we see throughout Scripture. One is the demonstration of his attributes. And the second is the majesty of his presence. God shows us the depth and weightiness of his goodness by acting towards us in ways consistent with the perfections of his attributes. And when he manifests his presence, he often does so surrounding himself with brilliance and splendor, with majesty that makes us in awe. And we get a great peek into that in this familiar passage in Exodus 33. If you want to flip back there, I believe it'll also be up on the screen for you. This familiar passage, if you recall, when Moses was going through a time where he was uncertain if God was going to continue to journey with them through the wilderness. And he calls out to God and says in Exodus 33:18, I pray you show me your glory You are the glorious God of Israel. You just revealed yourself with your personal covenantal name, Yahweh. I want to see your glory to know that you are with us. And God said to him, verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion On whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. And so down in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord does in fact pass by in front of him and Yahweh, God proclaims, Yahweh, the Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses then comes down after having experienced this vision of God's glory in its manifestation of majesty, of hearing about God's glory and God's description of his own attributes. And in verse 29 of chapter 34, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain ...that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. So do you see how all of this fits together? Moses wants to see the glory of God, and God manifests that glory by revealing how his attributes relate to his creation... I am the God who is good to you in these ways. And by giving Moses a taste of the brilliant majesty that accompanies the special presence of Yahweh. And just a taste, because God says, full majesty will kill you. And so Moses walks away with a heavy sense of just how good Yahweh is. And he also walks away with a glow-in-the-dark face from having been that near to the majesty of God. And our text this morning is full of the glory of God. And it's mentioned no less than five times in just as many verses. And we don't want to miss the significance of all this glory. And so now I would invite you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 17... And as you're able, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? And we will read John 17:1 through 5 together. John 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come this morning and we do worship you as a glorious God. We hallow your name because you are holy and you have shown to us yourself in ways that it is true. We cannot fully comprehend. We stand in awe when we consider how perfect you are, especially when we are forced to contrast that with the fallen and brokenness of this world in which we live it surrounds us but Lord we also recognize that that brokenness, that fallenness that sinfulness is within us and so it feels incredibly audacious that we would come to speak to the Holy One to the Glorious One and yet we know we can do so boldly because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ because of the glory that he has allowed to become manifest in his crucifixion In his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in the work he even now engages with on our behalf this very day. And so we do come boldly, and we do ask that you would continue the work you've begun in us until we become a glorious bride, fit for fellowship with you forever. And this we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. As we jump into this passage this morning, I want to kind of make three just general observations about glory. You can see the title on your on your uh, note sheets there about a victorious glory, glory for Christ's victory. This is coming off of the very beginning of verse one here. Jesus spoke these things, spoke what things? He just finished teaching his disciples. And what was it that he left them with? He left them with this. Take courage because I have overcome the world right that was the last thing he had told his disciples before he stopped speaking to them and he turns his eyes to heaven i have overcome the world and to the victor go the spoils jesus is now turning to talk to the father about the consequence of this overcoming that he is accomplishing he is is now going to be speaking of the glory that's attached to that overcoming that he is So successfully going to carry out in the events of the coming day leading up then to his victorious resurrection. So Jesus speaks these things and lifts up his eyes to the heavens and says and begins to pray. And imagine yourself in that room. You're the disciples. You've just had this conversation. It's been that emotional whiplash back and forth of betrayal and encouragement and excitement and and. A fear of Christ leaving, but the promise of the help. All that's been going on. And then all of a sudden, Jesus builds that crescendo. Take courage, disciples. I've overcome the world. I'm done talking to you. (laughs) Right? And then just stops. And I don't know what posture he assumes, but he lifts up his eyes to heaven. And it's clear the audience has changed. And he begins to speak to his father. And we're going to be in this prayer for a few weeks looking at Christ conversing with his Father. And I think, according to one commentator who, who summarizes this well, he said, in some respects, this prayer is a summary of the entire fourth gospel up to this point. Its principal themes include Jesus' obedience to his Father, the glorification of his Father through his death and exaltation, the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, the choosing of the disciples out of the world, their mission to the world, their unity modeled on the unity of the Father and the Son, and their final destiny in the presence of the Father and the Son. All of that is, is in this prayer that Jesus is going to have, this conversation with his Father. In the first five verses of this prayer, Jesus is actually going to pray primarily for himself, which is a pretty amazing thing to think about. God praying to God about himself. And then in verse 6 through verse 19, he's going to switch and pray on behalf of his disciples. And then what's kind of cool for us is in verse 20 through verse 26, he's going to then take that and extend it further and pray not for just those disciples that he is in the room with, but very explicitly pray for all the generations of disciples who will come to know him through their ministry. That means Jesus prayed for us in this chapter and we get to listen in by extension. That's pretty cool. And he begins this way. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. This is the first of two direct requests to the the Father that are in our passage this morning. It's the first of four direct requests that Jesus will make to the Father in the entirety of chapter 17. And the first two are both Jesus requesting for himself. Glorify your son, verse 1. And then in verse 5, again, glorify me together with yourself. Then he will turn and make two requests of the Father on our behalf. First, in verse 11, guard them in your name. And verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. And so the Son for himself asks for glory. And for us, he asks for protection and sanctification. And we're going to see why those are so essential in the weeks to come. There are other topics and applications of these requests that he fleshes out, but that's the framework of Jesus's prayer. And again, as we prepare to dive in, again, just remember what a privilege it is to listen in on this conversation. Have you ever walked in on a conversation between like two people that are having this very close, intimate conversation? You're like, whoops, I'm sorry, I'll give you some space, right? We've all had that experience coming around the corner and maybe two friends have just seen each other after a long way away and just the, that fellowship is so rich and so deep and you're like, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. And there's just something, even knowing that Jesus is speaking these words for our benefit, he's not only speaking to his father, but he's also teaching his disciples. There's just something humbling about being able to sort of sit there and listen as God talks to God about God and his glory. What a wonderful privilege. And Jesus then makes this request. Glorify your son. Well, what sort of glory are we talking about here? Well, we can eliminate one option. Jesus isn't asking the Father to give him more glorious attributes. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being God, they cannot change. Their attributes and their essence are immutable, unchanging. So Jesus isn't asking God to give him something which he has already eternally had. So he must be here speaking in some way of the manifestation of glory, for him to be given the ability for his glory to be seen in a particular way. So is Jesus primarily asking the Father to demonstrate the goodness of Jesus' attributes, or is he asking for the Father to demonstrate the majesty of his presence and over the course of this morning, I think he's asking for both. And it's certainly mixed in each case. But I want to argue that this first reference to glory is primarily asking the Father to put the perfections of Christ's attributes on display. And that the second mention of glory in verse 5 is asking the Father primarily to restore the majesty of his presence. And so let's break it down. This request of Jesus to the Father is defined with a who, a when, a why, and a how. When he says glorify your son, he gives us a who, a when, a why, and a how. The who, who is being asked to do the glorifying? It's the Father. Father, would you do this? And as we'll see in a couple minutes, it's appropriate for the son to ask the Father to glorify him, not for the son to simply glorify himself, even though, as God, he certainly has the capacity to do so. But he is coming and saying, It is right for me to ask you, Father, glorify me. That's who is supposed to do the glorifying. When? When is this supposed to happen? Notice that the prayer of Jesus here is conditioned on the fact that, as he tells his Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. You remember back when Jesus arrived at Jerusalem for this final time? And he had come in through the triumphal entry, and then as he was sort of in the temple area teaching, a group of Gentiles came and said, hey, we want to speak to Jesus. And it was to them for the first time that he switched from saying, the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. And he turns and says, the hour has come. And he's been using that language ever since. The hour has come. It's it's time for all this to take place. The hour for what? What? Well, the hour for his suffering and for his death. The time for him to be the substitutionary sacrifice for sin is at hand. It is the excellencies of God's attributes that make him glorious. And that means then God's glory is seen most when all of his attributes come together and are seen in combination. If you want to talk about theological intersectionality... There you go. The glory of God is seen most when all of his attributes and all of their perfections come together at the same time. And it is interesting that that is most the case when God is demonstrating grace. That is most the case when God is demonstrating grace. And if you'll recall, it's interesting that even when God caused his glory to pass in front of Moses... He didn't say, I am Yahweh, the God of justice and holiness who rattles mountains, right? He said, I am gracious and compassionate and show loving kindness. That is where the glory of God is most seen. God's attributes have never and will never be on display as fully to the created world as they were at Calvary. And Jesus is calling upon the Father to complete this perfect manifestation of the goodness of his divine attributes, to put on display all that makes him worthy of worship. That's the when. So why and how? Well, look with me at the end of verse 1 and now into verse 2. That the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. And so Jesus says the purpose or the why of the Son being glorified by the Father is so that the Father would be glorified by the Son. It's a connected loop. We've spoken of this before. The Son cannot be glorified apart from the work of the Father. The Father will be glorified in the glorification of the Son. They are connected together. And notice, neither half is selfish. Neither half is selfish. The father is motivated by love to put on display the goodness of his son and to glorify his son. The son is motivated by love to use that glory as an opportunity to point back to the goodness of the father. And so they are both able in giving to receive glory. That's a pretty profound concept that we'll talk about in a minute. I think has significant implications for our lives. So, how then does that work? How does this glorying take place? Well, to explain how this works, Jesus uses an example. He says, Do this, Father, in the same way that this other thing over here is happening. And what is that other thing over there? This is cool. The other thing that's happening over there is Jesus and us. Jesus and us. Did you see that? Father, glorify your son even as... That word there means by comparison, just as. In the same way as what? Well, he compares two things. First, in the same way that authority works over here, authority should work over here. The authority of the Father over the Son is being compared to the authority of the Son over all flesh. I want you to glorify me using your authority as the Father even as I have been given authority over everyone. I want us to exercise authority in a similar way. And it is that exercise of the authority that is the second thing that is being compared. The Father uses His authority to glorify the Son in the same way that the Son uses His authority to grant to the elect the gift of eternal life. Father, glorify the Me, in the same way that you have given me before all time began, complete authority over everyone so that every single person that you have given to me as as a gift of the elect, to them I will give the glorious gift of eternal life. That's what Jesus is asking. And that's kind of cool. There's aspects of the relationship between the Father and the Son we'll never know. But it is fascinating to think that there are similarities and that the goodness exchanged between those members of the Trinity mirrors the goodness that we enjoy in our relationship with Christ. And Before we dive into fully what a glorious thing this eternal life is, I do want to pause here for a few brief lessons. The first is this, appreciate glory when you see it. Appreciate glory when you see it. We as Christians, in our love for God, in our love for who he is, should have finely tuned senses to detect whenever the goodness of his attributes is being expressed. We train those senses at the cross. We ought to think and meditate often on the work of Jesus Christ because there is where we see all of God's attributes on display in such a unique way. What does justice look like? What does wrath look like? What does compassion look like? What is mercy, faithfulness? What are all of these attributes about? We see them most fully at the cross. That's where we train ourselves to identify and to appreciate the glory of God's character on display. We also need to appreciate the glory of God in the ongoing work of Jesus in this world. How cool is it that Jesus is still working in us today. For us to be able to see and to appreciate when we see God working in and through his people and his world today. To be grateful for that. How many of you have noticed it's a little easier to notice what everybody's doing wrong than to notice what like, good stuff is happening? Right? We come out naturally trained to find all the flaws and the problems. And I think that bent in us blinds us often to an appreciation of the glorious work that the Son of God is doing through the Spirit of God to perfect his bride. And we ought to be quick to say, I see God doing glorious things in you in this area and in this area and in this area. We also see it in glimpses and reflections of God's goodness all around us because check this out whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God there is a the capacity that we have to gratefully participate in every good thing in life in a way that recognizes that it comes from and is meant to flow back to a glorious God when you eat lunch today eat lunch for the glory of God and if you're going on little vacations and trips and camping trips, when you, when you enjoy those opportunities, do so to the glory of God. How about then when you have to uh, do the dishes when you get back? Right, that's when it starts to get challenging. But there is the capacity for every God-honoring human endeavor to have in it a recognition of the glory of God and an ability to celebrate and gratefully appreciate that in it. And we need to be trained to appreciate glory when we see it. So a gratitude check for us. Man, it's easy to just become critical and annoyed and irritated. Especially fathers, challenge to you, do not model that to your home. Model a grateful spirit, teach your children the wonder of discovering glory from their Father in heaven, all around them. Secondly, model your authority on the gospel. Model your authority on the gospel. When the Christian exercises authority, it should always be a display of the character of God, and it should always have as its goal the giving of glory. That's what authority is for. That's how it's been modeled to us. God exercises his authority over us Directly in line with his character and his attributes. He doesn't say, Well, this is how I live, but you know, you're just you, so you do whatever. I am loving, I will love you, I am just, I will be just to you, I am faithful, I will be faithful to you. The way that he exercises his authority is always an expression of his divine attributes. The way that we ought to exercise authority in whatever capacity God has given us that authority ought to be guarded, bounded, kept by an obedience to imitating the character of God and have as its goal the giving of glory? How do I lead in such a way that those under me become more glorious? That's what it's for. Who are you responsible for? Perhaps you've never even stopped to think about that. Sometimes we'd rather just not assume responsibility But whether we want to assume responsibility or not, who are you responsible for before God? Who was under your authority? And the question for us is this, perhaps, are they more glorious because God has placed them under you? Or not? Is the net effect of your influence on their life that you are seeking to give glory or that you're taking it? Third, adjust your self-esteem. Adjust your self-esteem. The Old Testament word for glory, kavod, means weightiness. The New Testament word for glory has more to do with how we think about ourselves, how something is esteemed to be, estimated to be. In our culture, it kind of clicked with me this week that the whole self-esteem movement is really about glory. A whole movement to try to get us to recognize how glorious we are and to be content with our own glory. Anybody knows that's Rough. I'm very disappointing to how glorious I'd like to think I am. (laughs) This whole thing isn't primarily about us. It's about God loving himself and glorifying himself in such a way that we get caught up in it. That's what's going on. Is there something in our life that's clogging up the glory flow and causing it to pool in front of us instead of being directed back to Christ And back to the Father. Have we esteemed Him glorious? And even though in a way that is amazing, it is true, God is making us to be glorious. He's making us to be glorious, not because we're glorious, but because we're not. Adjust your self-esteem. And lastly, pray like Jesus. It seems obvious, but it's worth pausing at least to mention Jesus knew the plan, he knew the Father, he knew the elect, he knew all of it, but here he is praying and asking and reminding, even teaching. If Jesus thought it good to spend so much time talking with his Father, not just on this night, but as a characteristic of his entire life and ministry, shouldn't we consider it even more so well, God already knows he's going to do what he's going to do, so all i got to do is just sit and wait to see what he's going to do to me. That's a bad attitude. Or is it precious to us to have an ongoing conversation recognizing the sovereignty of God, his predestining work, all those big words that mean he's in control of things in a way that I don't fully understand? None of those words, none of those concepts meant that Jesus was like, you know, I don't really need to talk to you, God, because you got it and I know it. Those were all reasons why he enjoyed fellowship with his Father. Pray like Jesus. So let's turn our attention then back to the prayer at hand. Jesus has just told the Father, Would you glorify me in the same way that I'm using the authority you've given me to give eternal life to those that you have given to me? And in verse 3, he moves on to then talk about What that eternal life is, and so if you're taking notes this morning, the second point in your outline is this: the glory we are given. The glory we are given. So glory is meant to be given. Ah, I forgot to give you your first blank. Apologies. Glory is meant to be given. That that is what we see in Scripture. Glory is constantly being given, but now we're looking at the kind of glory that's given to us in verse three. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Don't you love verses that begin with, this is what this word means. I love those verses. Uh, that just clearly define things. Here comes a direct definition. This is eternal life. It consists of two things, Jesus says, knowing God and knowing Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. That's it. Right? Truly, that, that is what eternal life is. That word know there means not to know about, knowledge-wise. It means to know experientially, to be pulled into the kind of relationship you have with something that you've been able to handle and to experience and to be part of. Being deeply religious isn't good enough. We must not just know a God. We must know the only true God. That's eternal life. And coming to God on our own isn't good enough either. We must have a relationship with the Messiah sent from God to be our Savior. Only then, when we have come to know the only true God through His only Savior, Jesus Christ, do we have eternal life. And that's the story of the Bible. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, was God exaggerating when he said, in the day that you eat of this tree in disobedience, you will die? And then they ate and lived for hundreds of years? No, he was not exaggerating. They began to die physically, but they died immediately in their relationship with God, didn't they? The instant Adam ate the fruit, their eyes were opened and they were ashamed and afraid. They died in that moment. They hid themselves from each other and they hid themselves from God. That's what death is. We need to stop seeing eternal life as a quantitative measure of the length of our existence. Instead, we need to see it as a qualitative measure of the closeness of our relationship to God. Because here's the truth. None of you are ever going to stop existing no matter what you do. That part's already done. You're all Im- already immortal in that way. No human being will ever stop existing. The question is, will you exist forever in a personal relationship with Yahweh or not? That's the difference between life and death. And so ever since the garden, God's been working to bring a sinful people back into the presence of his glory. From Abraham to Moses in law and covenant, from wilderness to promised land in tabernacle and temple, and then finally and fully in his son Jesus, of whom John writes in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. This has been the plan, not just since the coming of Christ, but from the very beginning. Let me take you all the way back to the sad prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah a prophet who nobody listened to and who had to sit on a hill writing songs of lament while he watched the city of God burn. Jeremiah 31, 34, God saying, I'm going to make a different kind of covenant with you guys. Hold on. I'm not done. I have a plan. And in, when that plan comes to pass, verse 34, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will, what? All know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the gospel. God will bring about forgiveness of sins. And the fruit of that will be a relationship with him. And Jesus says in the New Testament, This is eternal life, that you would know the Father and me. A couple of lessons. Eternal life is a present reality. Eternal life is a present reality. We're not waiting to enter into eternal life after we die. Jesus says, This is eternal life right now, that you would be knowing right now the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Everybody in this room, everybody on this planet has this invitation today. Welcome to eternal life if you will believe in the Father and the Son. You can now today begin to enjoy that personal relationship. And yes, it's a relationship that blooms because we've got this whole flesh thing, this sin nature thing, and that's being paired away by the power of the Spirit through sanctification. All of that's true, but here's the fact. When you were dead was when you had no relationship with Jesus Christ, and because of that, no relationship to the Father. And the instant by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, you came to know Him, you became alive with eternal life. And we need to live like we're alive now, rather than that we're just waiting to die. Eternal life is a present reality. Secondly, focus on unity then, not preservation. Our unity with God, our unity with one another. And in case you were wondering if this eternal life really is glory, look with me later in the prayer, John seventeen twenty-two to 24. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's eternal life. That's glory. And that will change how we live. Our world is built on self-preservation. How do I live longer with more stuff? Right? So much of our world is built on that. How do I live longer with more stuff? That is not eternally living. That is trying to hang on to something Jesus says you can't hang on to. And in your effort to hang on to that, you will lose your life. In our marriages in our parenting, in our relationships with our neighbors, especially here in the church? Do we enjoy living life to its fullest by trying to maximize relationships to their most Christ-like picture possible? That's what life is all about. Jesus ended there in 17... 24 by speaking of the love of the father before the foundation of the world and speaking of things that existed before the foundation of the world that takes us to our last point this morning. Jesus closes his section of prayer for himself here by asking God to return to him a very special kind of glory. He just finished telling about the kind of glory that he gives to us. Now he wants to speak more of the glory that he himself will be receiving. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In his perfect obedience, his perfect demonstration of the goodness of God, Jesus perfectly glorified the Father. That phrase there, having accomplished, foreshadows, in many ways, Christ's words on the cross when Christ will declare, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is filled up and made full. In verse 1, Jesus had asked to be glorified because the hour has come. But now it's as though he is looking past that. He's looking past the point where it's all done. Not that it's about to take place, but having fully accomplished. When everything is fulfilled, when it's all done, Father, glorify me with yourself. Well, what kind of glory is he looking for Here. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And I believe the glory Jesus has in mind here is primarily that glory of his majesty. The return to him of what he laid aside, in Philippians 2, as we read, when he humbled himself, emptied himself, and took upon himself the form of a man. His attributes didn't change but his majesty was veiled and it needed to be it would kill us otherwise just as the glory of God would have been lethal to Moses and so I want us this morning children's Bibles are great those little cartoon Bibles even TV shows like The Chosen can be useful in their own way but when you think of Jesus today, right now please don't think of a children's Bible cartoon picture please don't do that The Savior we worship has taken his place at the right hand of the Father and with him radiates an unbearable majesty. Write this down, Revelation 1, 12 to 18. We don't have time to read it this morning, but you should do that this week. Get a picture of a glimpse that Jesus gave to John at the end of his life of what he looks like now. This is Jesus with as much majesty as as John is able to bear, even in a vision. And it's a glimpse of glory that we hold on to as we grow in experiencing eternal life. I close with these lessons. In fact, just one. Behold glory, become glorious. Behold glory, become glorious. It's what theologians call the beatific vision. You become what you behold. Take courage, Christian, Consider what God, because of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, is accomplishing in you as you fix your eyes on our glorious, conquering Savior. Paul tried to press this fact upon the church in Corinth, which was a church that was acting particularly unglorious. And he writes in Second Corinthians, when you remember, that's actually the fourth letter he wrote to that church he's been at this a while but in second corinthians 3:18, he begins by saying this but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the lord the spirit and that's really practical because life is hard and there's a lot of things in life that don't feel glorious amen And so he goes on in chapter 4 to say this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal what? Weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If you can only see today all the busted stuff in your life, you're going to have a depressing day. But if we will remember that there is a glorious father and at his right hand sits a glorious son and they are engaged through a glorious spirit in the work of making glorious fallen people like you and me and that this whole World is on a collision course with a glorious future, even though you can't see any of that now, you can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Christ did fulfill the work his father gave him to do. The father did glorify the son. And that's why we who have believed that Jesus is the savior sent from God and have trusted in his death on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins, we can look forward to the day when we, like Moses, can stand before God and we can say, show me your glory. And on that day when we enter his presence, will he have to hide us behind the hollow of his hand? There is mystery here. But as John himself would write in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God. And it does not appear as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There is a hope to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me as the music team comes? Father, it is it is just too much for us to understand what it means what we to, to appreciate what we speak of. We have words to define categories, but we don't have minds to plumb them. We have a word like sun, but we can't even get within a million miles of its surface without being consumed. We have words to describe your attributes, but you are an infinite God and we are finite creatures and we just can't get our heads around your glory. But it captivates us. Like the sun, it warms us, it illumines the world. It captures our imaginations and our desires. It sparks poetry and song. And we pray that you would give us an A consuming passion that in our lives and in all things, you would be glorified and that your son would be glorified, that we would not miss or steal any of the manifestations of your goodness. And I pray that that would spill over out of our lives, that it would be a desire that we have for those around us, that we would not be content to rest while there are those in our spheres of influence who do not yet appreciate how good you are. And we do wait, Lord, for the day when you will glorify us, even as you have glorified your Son, and yet we are so painfully aware that you glorified Jesus because he deserved it, and you will glorify us even though we don't. So make us humble. May we be not a haughty people. But may our glory always be in the Redeemer who saved us. This we pray in his name.